Welcome to the 503 Podcast with your hosts, Nicole and Sime, delivering your monthly dose of everything related to software reliability and performance testing, presented by K6. podcast. I'm Nicole van der Hooven. I'm a performance tester. I work at K6. Hi, uh, I'm Simon Aronson or Sime, uh, and I'm a developer advocate at K6. We're both passionate about software quality, in particular reliability and performance, and this is our way a way to share our thoughts. And maybe we'll even convince guests to come on to the podcast as well. Yeah, hopefully. And just as a as a side note or as a disclaimer, while we both work at K6, this is in no way a, a K6 podcast and we will not be talking exclusively about K6, but rather about performance and reliability in general. So today we wanted to talk about some public outages recently. It was towards the end of the year of last year. And then the beginning of this year, probably Google is one of the most public ones because um, there were outages in December of a bunch of, of Google services, but most notably Gmail and YouTube. Did you actually experience any of those? Were you trying to use those services at, at that time? Yeah, I actually experienced both the Gmail one and the YouTube one. Uh, and you've grown so accustomed to always having those services available, right? So uh, whenever they stop working, you immediately notice and you clearly feel the pain of those services going down. On that day, I just kept running across things I'm like, oh, yeah, I still use Google Calendar because it's down. Oh, yeah, I, I use YouTube personally and for work. And the weird thing is, it was like three hours, I think, two hours of downtime for YouTube. I mean... That's nothing. I mean, that's still pretty good considering that there are millions of people that are using it all the time. So it's it's really only for very popular services that that even matters. They made the news for two hours of downtime, um, but also AWS went down in November. Yeah, they did a very public postmortem, and that was really exhaustive. They had the, some kind of downtime. Yeah of Amazon Kinesis in uh, North Virginia or in US East. What I thought was interesting from that is Amazon is clearly a company that eats their own dog food. So they use Amazon Kinesis for other Amazon products. And so even so something that might have just been contained to one product and the other ones could have kept going instead had like this ripple effect across their entire service offering because Kinesis was being used by other teams as well. AWS is definitely one of the biggest players, probably the, the biggest players when it comes to to, to cloud offerings. And uh, yet, yet they had, had an outage, so it can't really happen to, to anyone. Yeah, and what's even more ironic is that the reason for the outage was that they were adding capacity. So it was supposed to be, they were trying to prepare for, for just this. And they managed, it sounds like from their postmortem that they added the capacity, 
but they ran into uh, limits in the thread count limits. It's always uh, easy to be to be clever in hindsight, but uh, I I'm certain that if we were in the same situation, we would probably do the exact same errors as they did. Who would have thought that upgrading the capacity of uh, of uh, uh, Kinesis would impact Cognito and CloudWatch and Kinesis data streams or the, the event bridge. I mean, one of the hardest things about our modern uh, distributed architectures to, to actually understand what the consequences will be whenever something happens to one individual component, right? Yeah, definitely. I must admit that Probably before I worked on a small team for a SaaS platform in particular, that I probably would have looked at these outages and been more harsh. But now that I've experienced that, I, I don't feel any any anger or bitterness. I just feel like commiseration. I think about the, the people that had to stay up to, to fix things. It's It's not easy. It is hard and it sucks for everyone involved when these things happen. It wasn't just AWS, it was also Slack and Notion. I actually saw an article on CNN, and the title of the article was Welcome Back to Work, Everything's Broken. <laughs> yeah, that's hard. I mean, what a... Yeah, right? Yeah. Like, that's that's a bit... It's a sensational title. Imagine that you've been working for 72 hours straight with no sleep uh, and just had pizza and coffee for that entire duration. And then you uh, read the news and you're publicly shamed for whatever you, yeah, whatever happened. Have you ever experienced uh, an outage personally in something that you were working on? Yeah, multiple times. I mean, um, one of the most interesting where uh, it really became critical really, really fast was uh, when I used to work as a consultant many years ago and we had an incident where we <laughs> were going to upgrade the storage of one of our primary database servers in production. And uh, we had a sourcing partner at the time uh, and uh, we we made a change request with them to expand the storage, which they did. But they did it by detaching a disk from the other production database, uh, wiping that disk and inserting it into the one we requested more storage for. So we effectively lost days of production data. Uh, wow. Just because of miscommunication. In the middle of all of this, uh, the uh, single point of contact that I had with the other company, they just decided to go on vacation and turned off their mm -hmm. phone. Uh, so there I sat with no production data, <laughs> no one to talk to about it. Uh, and no resolution in sight. So it took probably a day maybe uh, before we had the data back in place. And then all the changes up to that point when the disk was erased, well, four hours or so of production data were just gone. And we, we, we were never able to to recover that. And in those situations, it it's really, really rough to be on the on the provider end uh, both i assume for the single point of contact or the yeah the uh, technicians on on the other company and for me that can't even affect what's happening uh, i just have to sit calmly and wait while they work and hope that it that it gets resolved 
And I think uh, something that a lot of people don't think about is the human factors as well. Um, Sometimes human factors can exacerbate or even cause the outages. One, one memory, one memory that sticks out in my mind of an outage that I was a part of uh, was pretty recent and pretty much I was the only one on the team who was online due to time zones. I had to make that call to to wake up one of our engineers and it was really early for them. All of our engineers were like really tired. One of them had just uh, flown in internationally, so he was jet lagged. That stuff actually matters because we should have been able to figure out that outage from the very first log that we looked at, but we all missed it. And in hindsight, we felt pretty stupid because it was right there and it was the very first bit of information we had. And yeah, we should have spotted it, but sometimes it's not about training. Sometimes it's about circumstance. So let's talk about what what uh, we could do to prevent something like that. We're a bit biased, I guess, since since we both work in performance testing, because that's one of the things you could actually do to make sure you prevent uh, these these kinds of outages, right? I think most of these kind of non-functional tests that we can run, whether that's, you know, reliability or disaster recovery or failover testing or load testing, I think they all run on the concept of game days. But I like to call it like Groundhog Day because every day is like the worst day, (laughs) the worst possible day for uh, for your application it's interesting that you that you uh, mentioned disaster recovery uh, planning or testing because that is something i i don't see that many companies do i mean there's still this idea that if a backup is successful then you have some sort of lifeline in case something goes south but um a backup i mean it's basically useless until you test it to restore it right uh, and at one of my first gigs in the tech industry uh, i worked at a smaller uh, company in sweden or smaller small we were about 1500 employees all included but it's still quite small that's still small in in, in the <laughs> scale of aws it's still quite small yeah uh, and uh, we did disaster recovery simulations at least once a year sometimes twice a year where we took a whole week at an off-site uh, where three engineers uh, got together and they restored the whole IT infrastructure from scratch. So everything was read from backups and everything was put in place. And the goal for that was to make it in less than 24 hours, to go from zero to fully functioning in 24 hours. The last year I participated in that, I think we were down to 12 hours or 14 hours, some somewhere around that, to to restore the whole the whole environment basically, um, and when you when you do disaster recovery executions or simulations that often, you really get to think about all those details that you maybe never even consider. For instance, if you were to uh, to have a real accident and the team would assemble somewhere to to put the, the infrastructure back up, where do you eat? Do you all go to the same restaurant? <laughs> uh, what happens if everyone gets food poisoned? 
then you have no one who can who can <laughs> fix the environment. Do you need to split into groups maybe? Uh, what if someone had a glass of wine? Uh, do we have processes in place to make sure they get a taxi and 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 get taken to wherever the rest of the team are? Uh, and the only way to to really know for sure whether you'd be able to to survive in such a such a circumstance is to actually try it. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Did you have processes for like getting people home if they've had a drink? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. We 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 the the last year I, I participated, we had all of that, and uh, you you don't need to be as thorough maybe as we were. We were probably overdoing it a bit. I mean, each simulation probably set back the company about uh, yeah a hundred k. Wow. Given that it uh, that, that we were there a week and did this. Uh, mm. So so that's probably not an option for most companies or it's maybe not a motivated cost. But at the same time, if you if you don't do that, what would be the the consequences of a real outage of a week where your whole production environment basically stops? I was reading in the AWS postmortem that one of the problems was that the service status dashboard that they had actually was affected by their outage and they did have a backup but people weren't trained to use the backup so their support staff didn't know how to use it either so it's like what's the point of having a backup if people don't know how it works yeah for sure and how how do you make sure that the documentation or the processes and routines for that system are up to date if you're not using it on a day-to-day basis right because when that incident occurs, if you've not trained on it, uh, then uh, that will be the point when you'll realize whether whether you you're able to use it or not. Yeah, too late. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I also think that the problem with disaster recovery and the reason why a lot of companies don't do it is okay. The cost, for sure, like you mentioned, but also I think it's a bit more advanced. I think a lot a lot of companies don't even go to the effort of making sure that their company that their application can support just normal load like not extraordinary load but just the load of a normal day and and tune for that. Sometimes they don't even do that. And so I know you're a big fan like I was reading um what you wrote yesterday I think about have starting with a steady state you have to get that steady state first. You have to know that your application is working under normal circumstances and that there's nothing glaring. Because if you don't get past that stage, there's really no point in going forward to the disaster recovery or failover because you already know you have issues. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, if you if you really think about, think about it and try to be honest with yourself, uh, how many times throughout your career can you honestly say that you had a a clear baseline to compare to uh, where you've actually analyzed and assessed whatever this whatever state the application is in if that's a desirable state uh, and what could make it drift from that i mean i sure haven't uh, there's been multiple gigs that i've been to that where we had no clue what a normal day operation looks like especially if you go back a couple of years 
prior to DevOps becoming a thing, because then you would just hand over your code to operations and then they would handle it from there and you'd have no visibility whatsoever into whatever happened to the product or the application once it hit production. Yeah, it's kind of like like a scientific experiment, right? They always have a control group because without that control group, you don't know anything. You can't make any any assumptions about whether a variable affected your results or not because maybe it was already affected by something else that was already in your code. The These kind of scientific methods or practices we can apply them as well. They're, they're, they're perfectly applicable on, on uh, software development and as well. So why not, why not use a scientific method to make sure that, that uh, uh, whatever we do turns out as we, as we expect it to? That's what I was thinking when I was reading your process for, for chaos engineering, that it starts with a steady state, which to me was like a control group, and then it's about defining a hypothesis. That's all term in terms of scientific methodology and not really ones that we hear in testing a lot. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And that, that I think one of the cool things about that approach as well, as you say, the, is that you define a hypothesis for for a positive outcome or for your your work to be sufficient. And then you get to do whatever it takes to to disprove that hypothesis and that's a quite a reasonable way to work with reliability in my opinion because uh, that that gives you control of the unknown unknowns as well which you wouldn't get if you only tested for known states and only made sure that those known states led to other known states given certain inputs most people that do load testing or that i see do load testing at least they test for some kind of acceptable level of, of performance. So they, for instance, say that, okay, we expect to have 10,000 users at any given point during this event that we're running. So we need to make sure that it works for 10,000 users. But that knowledge is not really that helpful, right? Because you don't know whether you will get 10,000 users or if you have a smashing success and have... 100k of users it becomes more valuable to assess at what point the application actually breaks so you know when you need to intervene or or do something differently and also what you could do uh, try to analyze what you could do to improve that i i think that's actually the fun part about load testing i love going further and thinking well what if because the what if isn't usually a technical limitation because once you've got a load testing script you can ramp up. That's not typically the problem. The problem is what if the load is, the, the workload profile is slightly different from what we were testing for. And like, I, I like this story. Um, it's not actually one that I experienced, but I worked for a big a company in Australia that dealt with um, horse racing. So the company would take the bets for people, uh, for Melbourne Cup in particular, but also other horse races. Melbourne Cup is like a huge, it's huge, but it's a two-minute horse race um, in Australia that, that like is a public holiday in, 
in Melbourne and all. <laughs> but anyway, so what was cool was uh, when I got into that team, there was a problem the previous year. And the problem was not that they didn't simulate enough load. They did. But that year, uh, a horse won that was like a long shot. There was a problem in the payment processing server. And because it was a, a horse that not many people had bet on, it didn't become a problem. But if it had been a favorite that had won to so someone that lots of people had bet on, it would have fallen over. <laughs> but who thinks to who thinks about like horses and and whether how likely they are to win a race as something that would affect the application performance <laughs> yeah and i mean i i assume that you could run a, a load test against the payments api and make sure that the payments api is able to handle a certain concurrency but you don't know for sure that it's that that's the point where it will break, right? It could be uh, an unlimited amount of factors playing in making that uh, happen. So yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't yeah. even heard about that. Uh, well, there was uh, another thing that we actually did see was that um, this company has many different services and only one service um, is related to the Melbourne Cup race. So it's like real-time streaming and betting and all. That we tested, but they have this other product, which is like artificially simulated horses. And it has nothing to do with the Melbourne Cup. It's like a, it's a randomly determined winner each time. That and it actually works. Like people use this service, um, and despite the fact that, like, if you think about it logically, perform high performance on one shouldn't affect the other because it's not the same event. They're not even real horses, but it did. It did experience an increase in demand. And what we put it down to was that people on this holiday um, who really care about horses were going into these kind of bars. They were getting drunk, looking at the TV and thinking they were real horses. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how yeah. do you plan for that, though? This completely irrational behavior that somehow you need to think about and plan for. <laughs> And that's quite interesting as well, because I, I think if you have that platform, you already have virtual horses uh, competing in a race <laughs> just as they would in real life. Then you could use that as a input for test data as well and run that at scale with the possible permutations you can think of uh, as a test case, right? Uh, for instance, what if number one wins? What if number two wins? What if number three wins? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Uh, just to simulate yeah. all of these scenarios, and I, I'm thinking of a of a situation that I've not experienced firsthand, but that is uh, somewhat related, at least to the disaster recovery part. Uh, and I don't know if this is even true or not, but it's an excellent story, so I'll I'll, I'll just yeah. assume that it's true. Uh, where a operations manager. Uh, had a visit from a sea level executive that current that usually didn't uh, work from their office, 
and they had their own uh, data centers in that office where the the operations team worked and uh, the c level executive uh, was shown on a tour into the the data center and uh, at one point he, he asked the manager do you have any disaster recovery plans uh, and and the the operations manager was like yeah of course of course we have those uh, yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> are they up to date uh, yeah 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 of course yeah yeah they're up to date and he just saw went to a switch oh, at no. the wall and just <laughs> turned off the power execute your disaster recovery plans please oh man <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate and, chaos monkey <laughs> yeah for sure the sea level monkey <laughs> uh, and uh, while being a bit drastic i think it's it's a quite good way to to assess whether you're actually you actually are ready or not. Uh, hopefully, you don't need to take it to such extremes that you actually <laughs> turn off a whole data center. But uh, how, how many companies can honestly say they have that level of prepared, preparedness? So, tips that we would give to companies that aren't like AWS and Google level. Uh, for for preparing for these things, um, I'd say maybe the easiest thing to do is start with monitoring production. Do you think that that's the first thing? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, that's probably the easiest one. And now with the commodity of of uh, CI tools, I mean, almost all software delivery teams use some kind of CI tool f- for building their software, right? Uh, I think integrating integrating your tests into that CI pipeline is probably also one of the easier things you can mm. do that have a huge impact on quality or whether you catch bugs early or not. I think a lot of companies are put off by the thought of having to spin up test environments. And I think I still think that there is a value to having production-like test environments, but... If you if you can if you don't have the budget for it, then test in production. Um, start with synthetic transactions, maybe to to see, like you said, the the steady state, the the current status of your application, and using application performance monitoring tools to to track the performance without you doing any like generating any load. Even you can still. You can still see that just with a synthetic transaction every now and then. Um, and then if you can, do actual load testing. And I think that once you're able to handle it at the normal level, then push forward into the more destructive and interesting areas mm-hmm. <laughs> where you simulate, where you become agents of chaos <laughs> and try to break something. <laughs> Yeah, and also, I think it, it's probably time well spent to take a step back and and really think about: Do we have coverage even at the unit test level or or at the integration mm-hmm. test level? I mean, uh, a lot of companies still don't practice testing at all. Okay, um, well, I think um, 
we need to cut ourselves off there because we could easily talk about this for hours more. Maybe we will again. <laughs> yeah, it was really nice. So this is obviously a new format that we're trying out. Um, let us know what you think. You can tweet us. Uh, do you want to spell out your <laughs> your Twitter handle there, Sime? <laughs> yeah, you can uh, either reach me on email on Sime at k6.io or at Twitter on uh, 0x12b. So I'm Nicole at k6.io. That might be easier to spell. Uh, my Twitter handle is n underscore Vanderhoeven, V-A-N-D-E-R-H-O-E-V-E-N. <laughs> Until next time. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the 503 Podcast. Brought to you by K6, a modern load testing tool built for developer happiness.